1: Previously on Fox News Rewind, 9-11. I had to commit our troops to Saudi Arabia.
2: Hundreds were injured and thousands were struck with fear in their hearts when an explosion rocked the basement of the World Trade Center. We
3: uh, fast roped into the objective and uh, started losing our helicopters, which was
4: our way out. The first wave of U.S. support personnel arrived Sunday at the bombed U.S. Embassy in Nairobi. The Pentagon is sending a total of 14 aircraft to Kenya and Tanzania.
2: The Algerian who has just been indicted on charges of trying to smuggle powerful explosives into the U.S. And he paid a visit to the coal, describing the
5: damaged part of the ship as a tangled mass of metal and wire. And there was this increase in chatter over the summer of 2001.
0: The
6: instructor reported that Otto was very aggressive. That more than once he tried to force the controls over to himself, even before he had passed any tests.
7: Legendary freedom fighter, Ahmed Shah Massoud,
5: who fought against the Soviets and the Taliban, only to be assassinated.
8: History is over. The Cold War has ended. We won. They lost. Uh, we let down our guard.
1: Episode 4, Nine eleven.
5: on september eleventh, two 2001 i was living in los angeles and it was early in the morning for us i was heading into the office in atlanta i was in washington dc i was uh at that time uh chair i of
9: the- was in school i was in ninth grade i was in my office u.s attorney's office in um Manhattan.
8: I was at home getting dressed. I was working at ABC and uh, (laughs) I was a little late into the office.
10: On September 11th, 2001, I was actually in Germany.
11: I was in Paris. I had just come back from a story uh, covering actually migrants. I was
0: in
2: Yemen. I was in uh, Sanaa, Yemen.
0: I had just come off a nice long weekend. It was a beautiful day, as I recall, in London, as it was in New York.
2: about tax cuts right
12: now. Talk about after, at the next event.
2: Very good. Okay. I
12: may talk about.
2: I'm going to talk
12: about education, though. Any
9: news on education? Yeah. Pay attention. Oh, Only facts, no opinions.
13: I woke in Florida in Sarasota, accompanying the president for a visit to a school. Former White
1: House press secretary Ari Fleischer. He was going to go promote
13: the importance of reading and especially for minority students that was a big thrust of his campaign in 2000 and he was following through on it skies were clear the weather was gorgeous no humidity even in florida and i boarded the motorcade for the most routine trip you can imagine to go to the
1: emma booker elementary school
6: 6 a.m on the morning of september 11.
1: border council for the 9 11 commission Janice Kephart.
6: Muhammad Atta easily passes through Portland, Maine, small airport and takes a flight to Boston, Logan's International Airport.
9: That morning I was in my kitchen with my wife and um, I was waiting for my brothers to come to my house because we were all going to play golf.
1: Brother of New York City firefighter, Stephen Siller, Frank Siller.
9: Four brothers, my brother Russ, my brother George, and my brother Stephen who was a New York City firefighter. That was just finishing his night tour in squad one in Brooklyn and then and, and, and myself. So we were going to go play golf. We didn't get an opportunity to do that too often. But uh, that's how the day started. And we were all so excited because the weather was just like so perfect. And, uh, and just to be around each other was a, a, a very special
6: day. At 6.45 a.m., Otto arrives at Boston Logan Airport. I was assigned
14: to the bus terminal uh, in mid-time and a half for the Port Authority Police of New York and New Jersey, and I was a
1: patrolman. Former Port Authority Police Officer, Will Jimeno.
14: My daily tasks were protecting uh, the facility of the bus terminal, um, and that'd be including, you know, just making sure is safe, uh, make sure people had information, make sure that anybody that needed medical assistance, uh, we tended to. So that was our primary goal, just safety. Uh, and information and protection of uh, both buildings and all our commuters that come to our facility.
6: Seven minutes later, he has a conversation with his best friend and fellow flight school student, Marwan al-Shehi, Shahi, is about to board another plane. It was about a three-minute conversation, and it would be the best friend's last.
5: 9-11 in New York City and Washington, D.C., was a brilliant day. Fox News
1: congressional correspondent Chad Pergram.
5: Just you know, a full day, the sun shining. It was amazing. Between 7:15 and 7:35 a.m.
6: at Washington Dulles Airport in suburban Virginia, hijacker and pilot Hani Hanjour and his four muscle hijackers, two of whom were brothers, checked in. This is what kind of a day we're uh, we have in store. As you can see, 80s here in these. No rain in sight
3: after the storm scooted through uh, last the night. The weather was absolutely beautiful. I remember it being like 72 degrees, there was not a cloud in the sky.
1: Co-host of Fox & Friends on the Fox News Channel, Steve Ducey.
3: And uh, because it was so nice, we were actually doing a portion of our program outside uh, on the plaza, where uh, we uh, we do a lot of our Fox & Friends stuff. And uh, it was a typical day. You know, it was, it, it was
6: September, kind of at the end of the summer. United Flight 175, also bound for L.A., was borning with Shehi and his four muscle hijackers.
14: I was living in Clifton, New Jersey, so I got up in the morning, got ready for work, about 5 a.m., uh, walked into my bedroom, kissed my wife Allison goodbye, kissed her belly goodbye because she was seven months pregnant. I walked into my other daughter's room, my, my older daughter Bianca kissed her goodbye, and I literally skipped down the, the, the steps to my house that I had just walked, uh, bought six weeks prior and drove from Clifton, New Jersey into the bus moon in
6: Manhattan and got ready for work. Back in Newark, New Jersey, Ziad was organizing his crew to board United 93, also headed for LA. Between 7 and 7.45 AM, they all make their way through security.
10: Commanding officer had come back to Washington. He had retired from the Navy. Former commander of the USS Cole, Kirk Lippold. And when I came back uh, that summer from uh, USS Cole and reported to the Pentagon, he called me up and said, hey, my boss here at the CIA would love to talk to you and uh, because we would like to show you what we knew before, during, after the event.
6: Ada and his team began their successful hijacking in the air and taking over of the cockpit at about 35,000 feet and about 35 minutes into the flight. After that, the FAA air traffic controllers attempt to communicate were no longer acknowledged flight attendants were stabbed mace was sprayed and flight attendants alive were forced to the back of the plane
3: i was outside and i was supposed to interview the planters peanut peanut mascot and so which is complicated because uh those mascots in the in the big peanut outfits they don't actually talk they just you know They kind of dance around and wave and stuff like that, but they don't talk. So the interviews are always challenging. So he had to, like, shake his hand, head, and uh, do a little dance and stuff like that. You're here to talk about uh, how this is National Cholesterol Education Month, September is. But I always thought there was a lot of fat
1: in peanuts. Yes.
6: Ada took control and locked the cockpit door. One flight attendant called a reservation's office in North Carolina, calmly explaining everything happening on the aircraft.
11: You know, the New York Mets were playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. We were in Pittsburgh.
1: Former New York Mets manager Bobby Valentine.
11: I woke up
15: early that morning, went down to the gym in the hotel in downtown Pittsburgh.
6: Boston Air Traffic was aware, aware that something was wrong because Ada had mistakenly used the communication system connected the, to the air traffic control.
14: I was assigned to Post Five, which is corner 42nd 8th Avenue. Uh, and it was a beautiful day. Went out to Post. Uh took my post looking into the lobby of the the building I was in front of. There was an awning above my head. Over to my right was Sergeant Ross and two other officers. And it was just a normal day watching thousands of people come through the bus terminal. At
6: 844, the flight attendant reported that they were way, way too low.
14: Early
10: in the morning, I drove up the George Washington Parkway and uh, arrived at the gates of the CIA. My friend John Russack came down, took me up to his office. We sat down with Charlie Allen, and for the next hour and a half, I got a briefing on what the CIA knew about bin Laden. At the end, Mr. Allen looked at me and said, well, what do you think? And first thing I said was, sir, first, thank you very much for your time. I know how busy you are. But secondly, America doesn't understand. I believe it is going to take a seminal event, probably in this country, where hundreds, if not thousands, die before Americans realize we are at war with this guy. And he looked at me and smiled and said, well, we're doing our best to make sure that doesn't happen. And as we walked out of his office and we walking down the hall, 20 minutes after I said that to Charlie Allen, the first plane hit the North Tower.
14: I looked over and I saw Sergeant Ross pointing up in the air, and he was following something, an object. I couldn't see it because the awning was above my head. Uh, but when I glanced over my right shoulder, I saw the intersection of 42nd and 8th Avenue just go dark. Uh, I, I didn't hear anything, I couldn't make it out, so I didn't really pay much attention to it. I went back to doing my job.
9: I was in my office, U.S. Attorney's office, in um, Lower Manhattan.
14: Former United States Attorney for the
1: Southern District of New York, Mary Jo White.
9: And then hear a very, very loud bang. Now, I'd heard loud bangs before, you know, after the Trade Center bombing in 1993 and thought it might be a bomb. But but the trucks driving over metal plates in Manhattan are very, very loud. Uh, so you you don't jump to conclusions when you hear a very loud noise. But I turned to my window, which saw just uh, just the edge of one of the towers, and I saw you know what looked like confetti flowing out of you know the trade center that had obviously been hit by that first plane.
14: Uh, and it was about maybe a couple minutes later our radios crackled and uh, the police test asked for everybody to come back to the police test. So they gave the code out eight forty which means for all officers to return to the police desk, which was odd at that point uh, because in the morning, the rush, we have thousands of people coming through. For every officer to leave their post had to be something big. So I started heading back to the police desk.
3: The producers came on in my ear and said, an airplane has just flown into the World Trade Center. Get back on the set as soon as you can.
0: Welcome back to Fox News. We have a very tragic alert for you right now. An incredible plane crash into the World Trade Center here at the uh, lower tip of
5: Manhattan.
16: It's believed a 737 has crashed into this speculation at this point, but at least three floors taken out, crashed into the side of the building. Joining us right now, uh, one of the producers with Fox Report, Owen
11: Mugen, on the scene. Owen, what do you know? What do you see? Where are you? Yeah, Brian, I'm on the roof of my building, which is about five blocks to the south of the World Trade Center. I'm looking, I'm looking right now at the World Trade Center. There's a massive gaping hole uh, on the second tower. It's about uh, about 15 stories from the roof. Uh, it's it's just unbelievable to look at. There's a right. massive hole. There, it, it, it looks like something out of a movie. There's a
3: huge slow. hole in the side of tower number one. Tower uh, one. Owen, your
11: your apartment is just a few blocks from it. Did you hear anything? I was lying in bed. Uh, all of a sudden, I heard what sounded like. A plane or something coming extremely low, and
15: then we just heard this shattering explosion that ran up to the roof and confronted by this horror. There's a gaping hole. I can see the south face, and uh, there are flames. There are papers flying out of the windows, black flames. There are are, uh, flames coming out of multiple
16: floors. I mean, I never thought it was by mistake. I'm not a pilot, and some people said it was obvious it was a passenger jet. Host of
1: The Brian Kilmeade Show and co-host of Fox & Friends. Brian Kilmeade.
16: But it just was such a clear day and I never thought it was by mistake but I thought it was definitely an attack but I did not think it was anything you know but a past you know a single passenger plane or a little bit bigger than that.
14: Uh, one of the things that I learned while I was in the Navy was always follow somebody in that knows what they're doing so your chances of coming out of a bad situation are higher and one of those people was Sergeant John McLaughlin and as I rounded the police test I looked up I could see the lieutenants and the sergeants you know they were busy on the phone but I focused on Sergeant McLaughlin and I could see concern in his face. So that caught my attention. As I went back into what's called our reserve room, our break room, uh, the TV was on and New York One was on. We had a big screen TV back there. And as I walked in, I saw the trade center and I saw Tower One with a big black caping hole in it. Uh, you know, smoke was coming out of it. And right then and there, you know, something that we were taught in the academy as Port Authority Police Officers is that we do the same job as the NYPD and all our counterparts in the New Jersey side since we're cops on both sides, uh, both states. But one of the things that sets us apart is that all our uh, facilities are target-rich environments, we were hit in 1993, uh, and the senior cops will always say they're going to come back to those towers. And right away, we knew those terrorists.
3: Within a minute, the image came up. We got it from our Fox affiliate. And it's like, holy cow, look at the size of that hole in that, that building. And it was like I, I don't think that was just a Cessna or a traffic a traffic reporter who had gone uh, awry off off course. That is a big hole in the side of the building. The plane obviously went in on one side and came out the other. There's debris all over the Pearls ground broke down below. On exactly, and as you can see, uh, it affects perhaps ten floors. Yes. I'm looking at this big hole in the side of the World Trade Center. And I was thinking, how are they going to fix that?
14: I grabbed my pay phone and uh, got a hold of my wife, which was a miracle because the phone lines were really busy that day. Uh, I started talking to her. She was asking me questions. That's when our inspector, Inspector Fields, came in the back reserve room and said, hey, we've commandeered a bus on Ninth Avenue. Uh, as we call your name, get on the bus. We're going down to the World Trade Center, which is owned and operated by the Port Authority and protected by the Port Authority Police. And he said, we're going to help our brothers and sisters do a rescue. So at that point, I hung up the phone, which uh, and and is a rare thing. I didn't tell my wife. I loved it. I just hung up the phone. And myself, Dominic Pizzullo, uh, Mike Robles, another senior officer, we were the first three to just get on the bus. And about 18 other officers got on the bus. And we started making our way from Midtown to downtown. Sergeant McLaughlin was leading the way in this police suburban and we got down there pretty quick.
3: We do know there is debris all over the floor, down uh, the the pavement down below, as uh, and crews are. Uh, they've got uh, all the police and the fire department and the emergency technicians are headed
16: to that area. This is horrible. And also, when you think about what happened to the World Trade Center before, uh, with the bombing there and the chaos that surrounded it, this is uh, a much different challenge, right. just as grave.
3: And also, uh, from one of our perspectives, we can see that not only uh, are there gaping holes, but uh, debris continues to fall down below at this level.
9: My brother Stephen was almost to the uh, Verrazano Bridge, because where he was working in Squad 1, which is in Park Slope, which is not far from the uh, Verrazano Bridge. So he was on his way home, as I said prior to this, to play golf with me and my brothers. He turned his car around, went back to his firehouse and got his gear. I
15: walked over to the president, uh, told, passed on the sketchy information we had. He sort of lifted an eyebrow and was like, find out more.
1: Former White House Deputy Chief of Staff under
15: President George W. Bush, Carl Rove. He was literally, I remember in the middle of shaking hands with people when I, when I talked to him. And so it was like, uh, you know, turned around and sort of over his shoulder, like, find out more. Uh, a couple of minutes later, uh, Connie Rice uh, called with the same information.
8: And about nine o'clock, a friend calls me and says, turn on your television.
1: Anchor of Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace. And I said, why? And they said, there's
8: been an airplane has crashed into the World Trade Center.
3: We talked about everything that was known at that time, which was not much. Um, we didn't know where the plane was from. Uh, We didn't know, essentially, the the size of the plane. We just saw a hole in the building, and we were surmising why that would happen. Maybe somebody ran off course. Maybe it was a traffic uh, plane, you know, one of those guys on the radio talking about the traffic in New York City. We did not know. And um, normally we go till 9 o'clock in the morning, but the news department was able to scramble their team got them into position early, and uh, John Scott took over.
11: I was opening the studio door, and my producer at the time, a guy named Steve...
1: Anchor of Fox Report Weekend, John Scott.
11: ...got in my ear with an extreme sense of urgency. He says, John Scott, get to the studio now.
13: Went into the office. Everyone was staring at the television, um, watching John Scott at the time steer us through what, what was happening. On screen,
1: Chief political anchor and anchor and executive editor of Special Report on the Fox News channel, Brett Baer.
13: And the TV's turned to every other channel uh, and then watching live as that second plane hit.
11: I am reminded of a couple of things that happened recently, Dr. Gross. Not long ago, uh, just a couple of within the last couple of weeks, in fact, uh, there was a pilot who flew there was another one we just saw we just saw another one we just saw another one apparently go another plane just flew into the second tower this raises this has to be deliberate folks i was
2: living in atlanta my phone rang it was about 8.45.
1: Co-anchor of America's Newsroom on the Fox News channel, Bill Hemmer.
2: And I did not pick up, and it was my mom. And she said, Billy, turn on the TV. Dear God, I think we're under attack.
9: And Stephen called uh, his house and told his wife, Sally, he said, tell my brothers I'll try to catch up with them later. But obviously we never went to play golf because then the second tower was hit. Um, and the day started to unfold. What is going on? It's
3: like, and, and we, everybody in the studio, we were slack-jawed. It's like, what did we just see? And th- my first inclination was, it, you know, is it, um, is, uh, are these airplanes on, like, autopilot and somebody's like accidentally navigating them into the building. And the reason I thought that was because I saw a movie once upon a time that had essentially that same uh, plot line, but it became very apparent very quickly that what
15: was happening was terrorism. The white house chief of staff, Andy Cart knows that he needs to go tell the president and uh, so he walked over the door and i remember at the time that when he got to the door he sort of stood there for it seemed like an eternity in retrospect it was probably you know 1001 1002 but he he he, he stopped and i didn't know why until years later when we have to be on a program together and he and he talked about that moment and said when he got to the door he suddenly realized He had to know precisely what he was going to say to the president, because the worst thing would be for the president to have to ask him a question in return. So Andy opened the door and uh, walked in and uh, whispered the news of the second plane.
13: He said to the president, a second plane has hit the second tower. America is under attack.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it
2: it was
1: uh, some kind of attack on the United States. Former White House Chief of Staff, CIA Director, and Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta.
15: I told the members of Congress, I said,
2: uh, we've just gotten a report that the uh, trade towers have been struck uh, by what appears to be a terrorist attack, uh, and I would recommend that all of you
15: uh, you know, get out of here as soon as possible because who knows uh, what the next target could be. But I'll remember forever the president walked into the room, and I've known him a long time. We met literally when we were in our 20s, so I could read his moods. But I saw a different person that day because when he walked in, he was very calm, he was very deliberate. There was steel in his voice, and he very calmly said, We're at war. Give me the director of the FBI and the vice president.
13: Bit of a frantic situation, and there's everybody now working the phones, trying to learn more, figure out what's going on, collect information. A TV was then wheeled into the room.
15: We got a hold of the FBI director, Robert Mueller, but we couldn't get a hold of Vice President Chady who at that moment uh, apparently had been grabbed by a, a Secret Service, and they're literally, you know, rushing him down the hallway to a secret entrance to the president's emergency operations center, the bunker under the uh, under the White House. Lola, uh, the president did talk with Condi Rice again, and then. Governor Pataki of New York, who was in Manhattan that morning. But uh, it was clear, you know, America had been attacked. We didn't know by whom, but it was clearly well-planned, at least the initial assault, uh, and with horrific uh, consequences. And then I
16: personally asked to get a crew and go downtown, and I went with uh, Scott Wilder, who is now an executive here. He was just a cameraman then. And we hopped in an SUV, and we tried to weave our way all the way down to the towers.
9: I was at the deli on Fulton Street, and I heard a loud rumbling. And when I walked out of the deli onto Fulton Street, I looked up in the air. And there was an airplane actually going into the World Trade Center, and flames were coming out, and smoke was just billowing in the air, and tons of people were running down Fulton Street just running each other over and I made my way back to my office on Water Street and when I got upstairs, I looked out my window to see what was going on and the Second World Trade Center just went into flames.
14: When we stepped off the bus about about a block away from Bessie Street, uh, I looked up and it looked like Armageddon. I mean, there was papers flying everywhere. There was dust, there was debris, uh, there was black smoke. I knew that the meant being one myself.
1: Former New York City firefighter.
15: Bob Beckwith was in there in the building to put out to do their job and put out
14: the fires.
9: Stephen drove to the mouth of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel uh, where it was closed for security reasons. I know how he put on his fire gear because there was an eyewitness that said to me that your brother's car came to a actually his black truck came to a screeching halt, got out and calmly put on his fire gear and started jogging into the tunnel.
16: And by the time we weaved down, I was immediately struck by the fact that there was some order. I mean, cops immediately started pushing you a certain direction. As crazy as things were, I did get the sense that law enforcement was scrambled in an effective way. I never thought things were out of control. I never thought police were running for their lives.
14: What caught our attention was right away was one of our senior officers said, look, they're jumping And uh, That was tough, because as I looked up out of the big black gaping hole out of tower one, uh, people were jumping. And, you know, people jumping by themselves, holding hands. And it was breaking my heart because I could see these bodies jumping and then they would disappear behind Building 6. And um, every time somebody jumped, I just thought it was like throwing a pebble into a pond where you get that ripple effect. Every time someone jumped, that was somebody's mother, brother, sister, father, the list goes on. And, you know, all I could think about is as a police officer, uh, we were sworn to, you know, protect and serve. And we needed to get up there. We We really needed to get up there. And that was a tough uh, thing to see is, you know, human beings, fellow Americans, you know, jumping to their death.
16: And then you come over certain blocks and you see firefighters look like uh, defeated soldiers. They were sitting there trying to gain their breath. One, some were coming in, some were coming out, but looked absolutely devastated. Obviously, we know how much uh, how much loss they would suffer. And also another thing struck me, too, as I got close, I watched a firefighter. Uh, say, guys, who's got a car? Who's got a car? Who's got a car? He goes, one guy says, I have a pickup truck. He goes, where is it? Five minutes later, the guy pulls it out of a garage, and they all hop in the pickup truck, and then he yells, what's your names? And they would say, he goes, write them down on a piece of paper. So he writes them down. They all write their names down on a piece of paper. They say some code that firefighters know, and they all came together. They formed a new unit, and with the civilian car, we're going back in. And there was obviously much more danger to, to happen and there could have been more attacks for all we know. But that's the type of courage uh, that that I saw and I witnessed.
14: So at that point, Sergeant McLaughlin kind of you know, snapped us all out of it. He came running from uh, uh, from the buildings he had parked on Church and Vesey. And he ran up and he asked for volunteers that knew how, uh, how to use Scott Uh Being Port Authority police were the first responders at the airports and all of our facilities. So we're cross-trained not only in law enforcement, but firefighting. Uh, At that point, myself, Dominic Pizzullo and Antonio Rodriguez, both uh, of them graduated with me uh, January 19th of 2001 with the 100th class. So we said, well, Sarge, we we just graduated. We know how to use the sky air packs. So he said, all right, let's go. And we're a team of four. And as we started running toward the buildings, I got to tell you, it was was scary because, you know, I knew everybody else was going to have jobs to do because they were, you know, kind of just staging there. Uh, but between us and uh, the buildings, there was nothing but destruction.
11: I want to bring into the conversation William Daly. Uh, Bill, I know that Osama bin Laden likes airplanes. And again, um, we are not attributing this act to his organization. But he was implicated in a plot to blow up something like 13 airliners in 13 days or 8 in 8 days. Mm-hmm. That back in the Philippines, back in the 1980s, I believe. Exactly. Um, it has, airplanes have been uh, his terrorist weapon of choice in the past. They have because they, they hold for, for someone like a bin Laden or other, other terrorists. Uh, the fact that you could take a
12: plane and within just the number of people on the, on the plane commit such a horrendous act at one time makes an impact to the world. Uh, combine that with an, with what we see in front of our eyes today at the World Trade Center, and you you certainly conjure up the worst possible scenario that a uh, certainly law enforcement could think of. What a terrorist might do.
13: Dan Bartlett pointed to the TV, and we all wheeled around, and you could see uh, the airplane hit in the World Trade Center. It was a rerun that was k- rerun a thousand times that day on the news, but it was the first that the president had seen it. And you just now start the gravity of it all. Uh, we kept working the phones. The president was learning a bit more information. And then the president wanted to address the nation.
15: Now the furniture in the room was meant for, you know, kindergartners. So there was not a big formal table and big adult sized chair. So the president uh, was, was started to, he sat down at the table, and began to talk with Ari and Dan and I about what he was going to say to the press. And he had a Sharpie and a piece of paper, and he's literally writing on a, you know, sitting in a little chair meant for a kindergartner, sitting in a table meant for him. And uh, we're talking about this. And Eddie Morinzel, the head of the Secret Service detail, came in. Eddie is thin, small, you know, trim, a really wonderful human being. Uh, and he came in in a very quiet voice. He said, Mr. President, we need to get you to Air Force One and the airport as quickly as possible.
12: I, um... Unfortunately, we'll be going back to Washington after my remarks. Secretary of Rod Page and Lieutenant Governor will take the podium and discuss education. I do want to thank the folks here at uh, at Booker Elementary School for their hospitality. Uh, Today we've had a national tragedy. Uh, Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the Vice President, to the Governor of New York, to the Director of the FBI, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government go to help the victims and their families, and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now, if you join me in a moment of silence, may God bless the victims, their families, and America. Thank you very much.
17: My operations officer, who was a two-star general, was telling me, he said, sir, he said, we're tracking an airplane that headed out of D.C., went west in the vicinity of Cincinnati, Ohio, turned around came back into the vicinity of the East Coast and was flying up I-95 towards DC when he made a left bank turn and went back south. Former
1: Vice Chief of Staff of the United States Army, General Jack Keene.
17: And so we're talking about it, I said, well, he's obviously heading for the Pentagon. I said, it's not that easy a target given there's only five stories above the ground. He may have been a little too high. And it was in that, in that conversation we were talking about evacuation procedures and the rest of it when that airplane indeed did hit us.
11: I don't want to incite any undue panic, but there is a report, a report only of another aircraft that has crashed on Interstate 395, one of the main routes in Washington, D.C. Now, that is only a report at this point but given the pictures you're seeing on your screen right now, anything is possible. David Asman is joining us from Fox Central, David, what do you have? John, we we are hearing right now of another explosion that have ta- has taken place at the Pentagon. We have the heart of the financial
8: district of America being attacked. Now we understand that there is an explosion. There has been an explosion in the Pentagon, the heart of the military. Uh, command center of the United States of America, John. It can't get much worse than this, let's hope.
3: Suddenly it, it was no longer a story just about New York City and the World Trade Center attacks but suddenly they were tracking an airplane uh, in Washington, D.C. Next thing you know, something flies into the Pentagon.
15: Normally a motorcade goes 40, 45 miles an hour. The This thing went like a bat out of hell. I mean, we were we were you know, it took us basically, you know, we were, we were doing 60 miles an hour, better than 60 miles an hour for the entire journey of about five miles. But we were, once we got onto the highway, we were going like 80 or 85 miles an hour. And we've left, It's just, we left just after 9.30 and literally while, the, while we're pulling down the parking lot, flight 77 smashes into the Pentagon. So on the way to the airport, the president gets word of the attack. Uh, the phone in the car rings. It was a small phone to his right up on the side of the vehicle. He pulled it down. I could only hear one side of the conversation. But I knew it was bad news when he said, is Rumsfeld alive? We need Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld.
8: I started driving into work to ABC News. And on the way, I saw this huge billowing black smoke, uh, this cloud, but coming from the ground, not from the sky, off on the horizon. And as I'm listening uh, to the radio, it becomes evident that uh, the Pentagon has also been hit.
15: And on our right side and left side, front near the front and near the back of the car were police cars that were matching us at like 80 or 85 miles an hour. I'd never seen it before and I never saw it again in a presidential motorcade. And later in the day, I asked Eddie, I said, Eddie, what was it with those police cars uh, bracketing us like that? And he said, we were concerned about a uh, car bomb and we wanted to make sure that if the motorcade was intercepted that the bomb would go off 15 or 20 feet further away from the president give him a better chance of surviving
10: so i would leave bid my farewell to john hopped in my car jumped in uh, jumped back on the george washington parkway headed south toward the pentagon and i was a complete mess i had kind of looked at it and said you know you are given responsibility for a one billion dollar national asset and 17 of your sailors died in an attack by the same guy that's now attacking your nation. Surely there could have been something you could have said or done that may have helped in this. I was just how I felt.
15: The president got up just about, just over halfway up, and Eddie Berenzel, who was standing next to me, uh, looks at me, and something crackles in his ear, and he says to me, move. And it was not like, you know, having a good time. It was, get your sorry ass up those stairs. So I began to run up the stairs, I got up about two-thirds of the way, halfway, two-thirds of the way. I looked to my right, and I could see under the wing of Air Force One, they were moving the press corps onto the plane, but first they were stripping them of every piece of electronic equipment they had. They had their tape recorders, their laptops, cameras, whatever it was. They were stripping them of them, throwing them on a mat. They had a bomb dog. Uh, checking to make sure that there was no explosives among the stuff. And they were forcing the press onto the plane without their equipment. They later tossed the equipment into the base of the airplane and sorted it out once we got airborne.
8: And what I remember most about that was this sense of the United States is under attack. And I, you have no idea how big this is. Things are out of control. This isn't one attack. We've had a lot of those. A terror attack. This is a, a series of coordinated attacks that have hit the financial center of New York and have hit uh, the headquarters of the U.S. military. How much further is this going to go? Well,
15: I never got to my seat because, again, as I'm passing the president's office, he whistles at me and points to the chair across from him. He's sitting down behind the desk, and he's pointing to the chair on the other side of the desk. So I go in and strap myself in. And uh, you have to have a shoulder strap if you're riding in, in one of these chairs, like in the senior staff cabin. Different if you're seated in the normal seating; it's like a normal airplane. But here, you have to put a strap over your over your chest, which I'm doing. And as I watch people running onto the airplane and running down the hallway, and it seems loud, and then I realize the reason is because the engines are already being ramped up. In fact, as I'm watching, the last person comes on the plane. There's a there's nobody else who's coming onto the plane, and all of a sudden uh the stairs disappear the stairs are on the back of a truck and bam they're gone you can just see them being pulled out of there at at a rapid pace and the reason is because we're starting to move and if they didn't move the 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 stairs on that truck out of the way they get clipped by the engines here in just a moment but we're starting to move and the door of air force one is still open and an airman comes running up the hallway grabs a strap by the by the open door, leans out over thirty feet of, of open, you know of, of, of air, and pulls the door shut and arms the door, and we're like, you know, bad out of hell moving down the down the runway. We get to the end of the runway and Colonel Tillman flips that thing around like it is a, you know, like you're in a piper cub, stomps on the brakes, powers the engines up totally, and then lets it go. Now I've done an aircraft landing and takeoff, and this is about as close a uh, thing as you can describe, because you know we're, we're, we're just rolling down the runway and at a rapid rate of speed to get airborne as quickly as possible. And when he gets his airborne, he stands the plane on its tail. So the, I'm looking up at the president who's across the desk from me, and he's looking down at me, and we're both strapped in, and you know I'm trying to be like, you know, how's your day been so far?" And, uh, and, and we're, 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 we're going at 40,000 feet as quickly as they can possibly get us up there.
14: Sergeant McLaughlin asked us to follow him downstairs. We were in the, in the concourse levels. For those that don't know what the World Trade Center was, uh, you know, two large buildings, and they were connected by a mall level, or the concourse, as we call it. We went down one level from the concourse to our police desk and got uh, a mail cart with more equipment. Then we came back up into the uh into the mall level and we were walking by a steady flow of of people coming out of tower one i i tell everybody you know the one thing i saw that there was a lot of love i saw total strangers helping each other people just caring for each other even though in the midst of chaos and you know there were people injured uh, there were people that had already passed um and as we passed these people you know, my main thing was just to follow the sergeant. When we finally
16: got close and abandoned the car and got on foot and we realized we're not gonna park close, let's just, we're better off walking. I remember getting to the site and feeling like this was another planet because everything was white and there were shoes everywhere. And if you walk by an open sewer or a drain, it was like a furnace. I mean, you literally would have your clothes burn off if you stood to stand there. That was clearly the fires raging underneath. So by the time we got there and found our truck, um, I saw David Lee Miller still here, obviously. And David Lee Miller said, I lost my cameraman. I got to take yours. And knowing he was the breaking news reporter, the one handling international affairs when uh, international events. The last time I had seen him, he was in Israel getting shot at. I realized he was better equipped, better trained. So Scott went with him.
2: John, I think it's important to, to keep in mind this morning that just getting
1: information out is a difficult thing at this time because there are people running through the streets with their cell phones in hand, many like myself, who are unable to actually uh, get through on the cell system. It is overloaded, and the only way for most people to communicate right now is to, is to find a, a regular telephone line because there are just
2: literally thousands of people streaming through the streets, all of them uh, not knowing what to do or what has
4: happened here.
14: At that moment, I still could hear the concrete falling. Uh, and also the sound of human beings. And there was a distinct sound between uh, concrete falling and human beings. And I kept hearing human beings fall, uh, the bodies. And, uh, you know, at that point, another officer walked up to me, Bruce Reynolds. Uh, he responded from the George Washington Bridge. Shouldn't have been in there, but he was in there anyway because he had a lung condition. But here he was trying to help people. And, uh, you know, as a young officer, I needed that encouragement. He said, you know, we're going to get a lot of people home today, kid. And that meant a lot. And at that point, Sergeant McLaughlin came up and uh, put more equipment in the in the cart. At that point, we had also met up with another officer, Christopher Amoroso. There's a famous picture of Christopher saving people that day. Uh, he's got the Nike gloves on. He had saved four people uh, before coming back into the building and hooking up with us. And we became a team of five. At that point, we, uh, we're leaving Tower 2, heading toward Tower 1. I got in my car,
2: and I was driving down I-75 South uh, with the radio on, and I did not live in New York at that point, point. and my imagination took me up to the place where these are the, these are the twin towers. There are thousands and thousands of people on a New York sidewalk every hour of the day. And if these towers go down, how many people could perish? And in that car, at that moment, the South Tower fell.
14: Uh, we started walking down the hallway away from Tower 2, and we were halfway down that hallway when Sergeant Blockin stopped us because he had to uh, talk to some firefighters and an EMT that was walking past us, informing them. And that's when I heard a humongous boom from above. Uh, it was immense. So I turned around and looked into the lobby of two where we were just coming from. And I saw uh, a fireball the size of my house. And I didn't know what to do. I was just standing there, holding my helmet. It felt like an earthquake. I looked up and everything was shaking. At that moment, Sergeant McLaughlin saw what I didn't see, which was as the building is coming down, there's a debris field coming toward us. So he told us, run, run toward the elevator, uh, which again was a miracle that door, that doorway was there. So. Dominic ran, I ran, I saw the sergeant uh, behind me. As I hit the the, the hallway, as the first time I said to myself, Will, what did you get yourself into? The lights started flickering, I could see brown debris. And uh, I started to follow Dominic and uh, that's when something picked me up and just slammed me on my back. Um, I was on my back, I went for my radio, I was yelling 813, which is our code for officers down. I'm yelling, I'm yelling, and then something hits my hand, my radio. I lose my radio, I grab onto my helmet and I'm holding on for dear life, as just concrete is just coming down on us. And uh, something hit my helmet, ripped it literally off my head. I had a chin strap, just took it off my head, and I just held on for dear life. And, you know, it sounded like it lasted forever, but then it just stopped.
11: We are looking at live pictures of the World Trade Center, literally starting to crumble. It is it is falling apart as, uh, as we watch these pictures live the World Trade Center 110 stories literally starting to fall
4: John
2: uh, the scene is horrific one of the two towers literally collapsed I was making my way to the foot of the World Trade Center suddenly while talking to an officer who
1: was questioning me about my press credentials we heard a very loud blast of explosion we looked up and the uh, building literally began to collapse before us There was uh, debris falling, uh, I'd say, at least three quarters the height
2: of the building. People within uh, the entire perimeter began literally, including
4: myself, which is why I'm out of breath, to run for our lives.
9: When the first tower came down, I was still in my house at that time, and my mother-in-law was watching the TV, and I turned to her and I said, Nancy, I think I just lost my brother.
14: I found myself in a in a dark void. Um, after a couple minutes, I started seeing a little light coming in from above me, about 20 to 30 feet above me, uh, there was a hole. And when I could finally see, uh, all I saw was I was buried in concrete. Uh, to my left was Dominic, he was in a push-up position down. Uh, down toward my feet, I could hear Sergeant McLaughlin on the other side of like a concrete wall. And he said, how's everybody doing? Sound off. I said, uh, Jimeno, uh, Dominic said Pizzullo, and at that point we didn't hear Antonio Rodriguez or Christopher Amoroso. Uh, and I kept yelling their name for like two minutes, and that's when Dominic finally said, Will, they're in a better place. The president
11: was trying, I think, to get some kind of a message out to the nation, and the Secret Service simply said it was too dangerous. They didn't want him Uh, going anywhere public. So for a long time, there was a dearth of communications coming from the White House and a dearth of information, which was part of the frustration.
13: Secret Service and Colonel Tillman were adamant, we're not returning to Washington. The president wanted to get back to Washington. At one point, he said, the American people don't want some tin horned terrorists keeping their dang president out of Washington.
15: And almost immediately, an argument breaks out. president says, we're returning to Washington. And everybody says, you shouldn't return to worship. We don't know what else is coming. We don't know what else might be there. There might be somebody with a shoulder launch missile just waiting on the final approach to Andrews for you to appear. We don't know. And it was interesting to watch because I've known the president a long time, and not an angry guy. But I call it, that's one of the few moments where I saw him almost get angry. I mean, everybody's piling in. Eddie, you know, Eddie... Moranziel, uh, uh, Chief of Staff Andy Card, the Vice President. Please, Mr. President, don't return. And the President says, "We're going home. We're going to Washington." And finally, after some amount of time, I mean, at one point, Eddie comes in and starts to repeat some arguments to the President that Eddie had made or That uh, Andy had made earlier. And the President said to, to snapped at Eddie and said, "You tell Andy if he wants to make those arguments, he can come in here and make them again himself." Finally, though. Major Tub Gould came in and said, Mr. President, uh, we don't have a full fuel load, and we got a lot of people in this plane. So it had just enough sense to it that uh, the president agreed. It, he wasn't happy about it, but uh, there was an agreement to it.
8: One of the questions was, was there another plane headed to Washington, and was it headed either for the White House or for the U.S. Capitol, uh, and, and as somebody who was... Is- living and working in downtown washington uh there was a real sense of fear and and you have to add to this on a professional level you're obviously trying to cover the story but there's also a personal component as somebody who lived in washington i had kids in schools across the metropolitan area uh three different schools and uh, as uh you're you're concerned about how widespread this is going to be and is it going to be just just i say in quotes planes flying into buildings or are there going to be chemical weapons or biological weapons you you want to get your family back together and of course as soon as all of this happened washington went into complete gridlock uh the the phone system went out the 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 roads became completely jammed because everybody was running to collect their children to get their families together in a sense at that moment you were running for your life.
16: You know, it felt like a bomb hit or a plane hit or something like that. But the whole floor was- plane thinking. did hit? A plane did hit. Yeah, and then when we looked out the window, all we saw was debris all over the place. But we thought the building was going to topple over. It was going so- well, one shaking. of them did. One of them did. We were in town one. We made it out. Well, you're a lucky man. Thank you very much.
14: I was in a lot of pain because I had literally a wall fall on my entire left side, and uh, the pressure was, was kicking in. Uh, and Dominic said, uh, I'm not hurt, but I'm kind of stuck. So what happened was this wall that fell on me missed him, but uh, he was buried in the debris. So after a little bit, uh, Dominic was able to shimmy out of the Scott air pack and literally crawl over my face because this void we were in was very, very tight. Uh, When I'm telling you, I had maybe 18 inches above me and maybe a couple feet to my right. Uh, Dominic crawled over me, uh, got into this little hole where he could crouch. And at that point, he asked Sergeant McLaughlin, Sarge, I think I could go up this hole and go get help. Sergeant McLaughlin said, no, you got to get Jimeno out, and then you and Jimeno get me out, because you'll never find us again if you go out into that debris field.
10: There was a, a, a big shaking. Some of the ceilings collapsed. Looks like there was a fire in the elevator shafts. And... Um, Uh, Just they they brought everyone down and started bringing everybody down the stairs. So you came down from the 77th floor? 77th floor, down the stairs. down the stairs? Yes. What what was happening around you? People screaming? No, no, people were pretty calm. When we got down to sixth floor, there was like another shake or another explosion. Everyone started panicking, but everybody was really calm, and the police and firemen were very helpful. At
14: that point, Dominic made a brave decision, and uh, he decided to stay and try to get me out. And uh, it took him about 10, 15 minutes. He was trying to get me out, uh, and he couldn't get me out. And that's when we knew we were really in trouble. And that's when we heard another humongous boom. Uh, it was the other tower coming down.
11: We can see the top of the building from here.
1: Oh,
10: yeah. Oh, there it goes. There it goes. There it goes. There it goes. Oh. When it comes downward. All, All right. right. We do need to put it down now. It I think down, we need to put it down.
1: down now. Here we go.
2: Offer a prayer.
11: America, offer a prayer.
14: At that point, I thought I was going to die. You know, I made the the sign of I love you in sign language and I crossed it on each hand and I crossed it over my chest as something I do to my wife and my kids. So I figured if my wife uh, was told that they found me like that, she would know that I was thinking of her in the last moments.
17: According
11: to American Airlines, American Airlines is confirming that its flight 11 from Boston to Los Angeles was hijacked today and that its plane was the first one involved in this attack on the World Trade Center.
8: Obviously, the air traffic controllers are trying their absolute best to get a handle on this. And one of the ways, because they know that uh, airliners, commercial airliners, are being used as weapons is to get all of those planes down. Now, you can't get, when you've got thousands of planes in the sky over America, you can't get them down in, in, in a great hurry. But at a certain point, Uh, We got most of them down, and then the question was, were there some planes still up there? Are they just people who haven't been able to land yet, who haven't gotten the message, or uh, have they been taken over as well?
9: At this point, normally at this time of day, there are typically 4,000 aircraft a loft in the united states these are in you know international domestic flights a variety of ones and these include military planes as well as private and commercial aircraft at this point there are only just a
5: few hundred at this point because they have ordered a national ground stop as of two hours ago it's the first time in u.s history that they have ordered all u.s planes to be grounded immediately international flights are being diverted to canada and the ones that are domestic are being ordered to reach their destination as soon as possible.
13: When we boarded Air Force One, the first word we got aboard the aircraft was that there were still six unidentified aircraft that had not responded to the order for all aircraft in the United States to immediately land. So our first thinking is, three planes have hit their targets, there are six more to go.
15: We were sitting in the uh, office, when you got a phone call on Air Force One. And um, it's Vice President Cheney on the other end of the line. And again, I could only hear one side of the conversation. Andy Cardin and I are sitting there. And, but Cheney says something to him. The president listens for 10 or 15 seconds and says, yes. Listens another, you know, 10 or 15 seconds, says, you have my authorization. Listens a few moments longer, says, you have my authorization. And says, yes, and hangs up. It looks at Andy and I and says, I've just given authorization to the military to shoot down any aircraft inbound to a critical target that's not under control of its crew. And I remember how even keeled his voice was, how just sort of normal tone it was to say such an extraordinary thing. And And I was so shocked. I can't remember what he said next, but I remember him sort of looking off and reflecting on what a terrible order That would have to be and how he would hate to be that pilot to have to receive and act on that terrible order to shoot down an aircraft like that
17: a young lieutenant colonel um she uh was in her office space when the attack took place the they were severely damaged the walls collapsed part of the ceiling collapsed um they after the blast they got a significant fireball that came through uh, then white smoke, and then uh, black acrid smoke. The fireball uh, uh, impacted both of them, and she put the fire out on herself and put the fire out on uh, her co-worker, who was a civilian woman, uh, and she was overweight. And she tried to move her, and, and there were no lights in the Pentagon, of course. Uh, she couldn't move her uh, carry it, but she put her on her back and then she crawled out on all fours and um, she had to go the length of about a football field before she could get past the black acrid smoke and just prior to coming out of that she heard another woman in her office moaning and uh, then obviously she was injured and then when she got clear of the smoke uh, she took uh, we were she was on the second floor she took a computer and threw it through the window and and got this woman to the windowsill and got her to jump I think likely she probably pushed her um, but that was not said and the woman is telling me this story with the lieutenant colonel laying in the bed next to her and then the lieutenant colonel as opposed to Jumping out that window herself, went back and put her life at risk to go get that other person.
15: You know, there were moments like that all day long. You know, Rumsfeld leaving the office, uh, his office as Secretary of Defense, uh, throwing off his jacket and and going to the fires, just do what he could to save lives. But the but the most extraordinary moment of the day was Flight 93.
6: At 8.42 a.m., United 93 took off from Newark. This was where Ziad Jared was to be the pilot.
1: Janice Kepphard.
6: It was supposed to. This was the plane that was out of sync because it was supposed to have departed at 8 a.m. Otto was only going to crash four minutes later, and there was one less hijacker, muscle hijacker on this flight. The FAA, by this point, was realizing they were dealing with multiple hijackings. At 928, the hijackers attacked. But this time, the pilot, the uh, U.S. pilot, um, was struggling and calling May Day right after receiving warnings that it, from a United dispatcher that cockpits were being intruded by hijackers.
1: My phone starts ringing, and, and it's my wife. Brother of United 93 passenger Louis Joseph Nackey, Ken Nackey.
7: My wife goes, hey, just got a call from your dad. He believes Joey was on one of the flights, and I'm thinking to myself, "No, nah, that can't be." You know, I mean, you, immediately your mind goes into denial. At least mine did. And I'm thinking, "No, nah, that can't be." I says, "Has his wife heard from the airline jet Or, and he, you know, asked. I had more questions than she had to answer for. And she says, "No, I don't have anything." You know what I mean? I'm just waiting for a call back from your dad. But your dad believes that Joey was on one of the
18: flights. And my brother at the time actually worked in New York City. So my first thoughts were really just focused on, as I think most people, New York City and what was going on there and trying to get a hold of him or waiting for him to get a hold of me.
1: Goddaughter of United 93 flight attendant Lorraine Grace Bay, Emily Schenkel.
18: And, uh, you know, over time he was able to get a hold of me and he had actually seen the second plane hit. So he was, you know, the whole morning was really just trying to focus on him. making sure that he was safe. And then, um, I honestly don't even know what time it was at this point, but I got a phone call from another family member and she was extremely upset to the point that I couldn't, couldn't really understand what she was trying to say. And I kept saying, no, you know, Derek is okay. He's okay. I've talked to him. He's trying to get home. It's going to be okay. And then at that point I realized what she was trying to tell me is that, um, you know, my godmother, whom I called aunt, was on flight 93.
7: After the actual hijacking took place, the passengers and crew were pretty much forced to the rear of the plane. There were supposed to be five hijackers on flight 93, but there was only four due to the fact that one of the hijackers um, was not let into the country, was actually sent back. Um, out of the country before uh, 9-11. So there's four, you know, terrorists on board and 40 passengers and crew. They were pretty much huddled back into the back of the plane and due to the small numbers, the terrorists kind of let them kind of do what they want. They could do, not what they wanted to do, but what they, you know, limited what they could do. Well, family, you know, they started making phone calls.
6: At 9.39, Jarrah, like Ada before him, mistakenly broadcasts to the Cleveland Air Traffic Control, and he's telling the passengers to stay seated or uh, because there was a bomb on board. And the passengers, beginning to get calls and understanding what was going on as well, knew about the other hijackers and began making calls to family members, et cetera to both find out what was going on, but also to to tell them that they were on this flight.
4: Well, there's one anecdote that's always stood out to me. It's a little embarrassing, but I'll tell you anyway.
1: Fox News senior political analyst, Britt Hume.
4: So I'm sitting in the studio and of course in Washington, the backdrop of that studio is a window that that looks out at the U.S. Capitol. And so that was behind me as I was sitting there doing the Washington end of the anchoring. I wasn't on camera much, but that's where I was sitting. And at one point, the Brian Wilson, who was over on Capitol Hill for us, just up the street, uh, called in on the briefing line to say that there was a plane headed up the Potomac River at, at high speed. And nobody was sure what it was, but they thought it might be headed for the Capitol. And they were evacuating the building, which I promptly reported on the air that they were evacuating the Capitol. That was the kind of event, you know, that, that, that happened that day. And presently, Kim Hume Walks into the studio while I'm not on, and she said, "We're moving you to the other studio next door um, because you know if that plane hits the Capitol. You know you're going to be in the line of fire there." And 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 I made an extremely pompous little speech about how this is where I need to be. This is the work I signed up for. This is what I do. This is where I should be. And finally, she looks at me and she said, "Brit." If the plane hits the Capitol, we need the shot.
11: Brian Wilson is on the phone with us now from the Washington area. Brian, what's the latest?
17: Well, I wanted to tell you, John, that I'm in front of the Capitol. And a moment ago, police officers ran up to us and ordered us off of the grounds and told us, and I quote, There is a plane that has been hijacked. It is 20 minutes south of Washington. This was about 10 minutes ago and is headed this way they are taking ultimate precautions. Now, as you know, in these chaotic situations, sometimes information
18: gets twisted, but police officers here are saying that they believe there is a hijacked plane now headed toward Washington. Lauren Grancolas called her husband, Jack, um, and she left a message, you know, very calm voice saying, listen, the flight's been hijacked. Um, there hasn't been a, a transcript of the call, but, um, you know, it's it's out there. And basically she just called and said, listen, everything's okay. Um, but the flight had been hijacked and there's problems. Um, and then she just went on to say, you know, many times that she loved him and also, um, you know, told him to please tell everybody in her family that she loved him. And then she said goodbye.
7: I try to think to myself that while they were planning their attack and gaining information that the drive that they had you know all 40 of them was just to get home to their families and have dinner i think that's all they needed for motivation to make sure that the terrorists were not successful whatever they had planned
18: they knew what was happening. They knew what the plan was. They knew that this was not going to end with them, you know, landing somewhere and being held hostage or something like that. Um, So they really got together and they discussed things. They made a plan and they voted, which is really about as, you know, American as as you can get.
7: So we know they're able to gain information. They were able to really sit down and think what it meant and what they needed to do, they came up with a plan, voted on a plan, and then executed that plan and made sure that Flight 93 did not reach its intended target.
6: By 9.57, the passengers, re- how we'll call it, you know, revolted, and they began assaulting the hijackers the passengers ran into first class. They tried to break into the cockpit. At 9.58, Jarrah told a hijacker to block the cockpit door. He tried rolling the plane back and forth to stop the assault, but it, it didn't work.
7: Just imagine that you only have 40 people on board such a large plane against, you know, four adversaries. So, I mean, it's Just that small window of time, the sheer mental toughness of those individuals is just amazing.
6: By 10.01, the passengers were forcing that cockpit door, knowing that this was their last chance to stay alive. Jara then yells, Allah is great, Allah is great. Another hijacker yelled, Put the plane down, put the plane down. And within seconds, Jared drilled that United 93 into the ground at a 90 degree angle, like a screw into wood. He was only 20 minutes from Washington, D.C.
11: Authorities at the Somerset County Airport confirm a large plane crash about 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. We're trying to deal with only facts today and not rumors because there are plenty of those swirling around. But we do have a confirmation of apparently another plane crash about 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. You've got to assume that it's related to all of these goings on, but uh, we don't know any more information than that.
7: As the day went on, and I, I always ask people, do you have a brother or a sister? You know, and when in your family. And you know, you have that, I guess, sixth sense about you that over time you kind of realize, you know, something's missing, something's not right. And as the day went on, you know what I mean? I just kind of felt, you know, that something was missing.
11: I want to get uh, quickly to Chris Kanicki He's a photographer with the uh, Pittsburgh affiliate of Fox Affiliate. He was back there just a couple of minutes ago. And Chris, I've seen the pictures. It looks like there's nothing there except for a hole in the ground. Uh, basically, that's right. The only thing you could see from where we were uh, was a big gouge in the earth and some broken trees. We could see some people working, walking around in the area, but. From where we could see, there wasn't much left. Any large pieces of debris at all? No, there was nothing, nothing that you could distinguish that a plane had crashed there. It was like, my God,
15: what were those people, how did they find the courage in them to do that? You know, how did they find, they knew what they were doing, they, they, they knew what their end was going to be, and yet, rather than retreating in in, 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 in silence to their seats, they, they, they attacked evil. And... Uh, it was a statement of what the spirit of America was all about.
7: First thing I, ask, I I think to myself is, what would our country look like today if Flight 93 had reached its intended target? Would the Capitol still be here, or luckily would they be able to take out the White House?
15: And there, There is a common courage in ordinary Americans that is a remarkable thing for our country. And in the opening battle of, the, of the war against terror, those were our first heroes.
5: In the terrorist attacks today, it appears that a friend and a colleague here at Fox News has killed, has been killed in one of the plane crashes. Barbara Olson, you know her as a very familiar face, as a frequent commentator on the Fox News channel and other networks. She is also the wife of Ted Olson, the Bush administration's nominee for Solicitor General, he was also very much involved in the uh, in the Bush effort, working out the uh, the contest over the vote in Florida in the presidential uh, election. It appears that Barbara Olson was on the plane that crashed into the Pentagon. She is believed dead. And we're very sad to report it.
15: We also learned about the death of uh, Barbara Olson, uh, the wife of Solicitor General Ted Olson, and uh, this hit me particularly hard because I, I knew Barbara and Ted. In fact, I tried to to talk Barbara into coming into the White House as the director of uh, the office of uh, public liaison. And she just for a variety of reasons was not able to do so. But we
11: learned about her death. Mr. Mayor, do we have any idea yet the number of casualties? We don't know the number of casualties. We know it's going to be...
2: A large, large number of people that were seriously injured and that died, and there's no way at this point of knowing or even focusing on that. The, the effort right now is to save as many people as possible, and we have thousands of emergency workers doing that right
14: now. After the second collapse, we found ourselves, uh, you know, in a lot more pain. Uh, I was in more pain. Will Jimeno, Sergeant McLaughlin was not yelling. Who uh, was being crushed in a fetal position? When I looked over to my right. Dominic Pizzullo, my buddy and my fellow officer, he was bleeding out of his mouth. He had taken a severe injury uh, from a piece of concrete that came in during the second collapse. At that point, you know, uh, I said, Dom, you okay? Dominic said, no, Willie, I'm dying. And uh, I said, hold on. At that point, he said to Sergeant McLaughlin, Sarge, can I get a 3-8, which is our code for a break? Sergeant McLaughlin, even though he was in a lot of pain, he stopped and he said, yeah, you can have a 3-8. At that point, you know... Dominic said, Willie, I'm dying. Don't let anybody forget that. You know, I died trying to save you guys. I said, I would never let anybody forget that, Dominic. At that point, he pulled out his sidearm and he pointed up into the hole above us and he fired around in last-ditch effort for someone to know we were down there. And he passed. I can't imagine anything worse than this. It's got to be. I can't imagine. You know, everybody on a plane must have died. The floor, I got friends of mine on 104th floor, friends on other buildings. I just spoke to one of my friends a half hour prior to that, getting ready to go upstairs to go to work. I was yelling to the sergeant that Dominic had passed. He told me to keep focused, uh, being the professional he is. And we continued our struggle for survival at that point. You know, uh, I asked the sergeant what to expect. He goes, nobody's ever written a booklet uh, for this training. You know, we're going to have to just, you know, literally from within survive. Uh, That started a long evening of pain and suffering uh during that course of time some fireballs had fallen and started burning me uh my arm and somehow they would put themselves out but they would continue to fall in and at one point i guess they must have landed near dominic's pistol that was now uh, near him and heated it up and next you know his weapon fired off above my head so 15 rounds went over my head which was insane um and you know i was just like almost Uh, frantic at that point, but I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything.
15: And we end up at Barksdale Air Force Base near Shreveport, Louisiana.
1: Carl Rove.
15: And the reason was that this base had been on lockdown since the day before. So there was, there were no civilian personnel on the base. Everybody was in a training exercise at, you know, sort of DEFCON wood. And so the entire base is, uh, is treating itself like it's on war footing. So it's the most secure of all the four facilities, that we've passed.
12: Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Right.
15: And freedom will be
12: defended. All right. I want to reassure the American people that full, the full resources of the federal government are working to assist local authorities to save lives and to help the victims of these attacks. Make no mistake, the United States will hunt down and punish those responsible for these cowardly acts. I've been in regular contact with the Vice President, Secretary of Defense, the National Security Team, and my Cabinet. We have taken all appropriate appropriate security precautions to protect the American people. Our military at home and around the world is on high alert status. And we have taken the necessary security precautions to continue the functions of your government. We have been in touch with the leaders of Congress and with world leaders to assure them that we will do whatever is necessary protect America and Americans I ask the American people to join me in saying a thanks for all the folks who have been fighting hard to rescue our fellow citizens and to join me in saying a prayer for the victims and their families the resolve of our great nation is being tested. But make no mistake, we will show the world that we will pass this test.
13: God bless. At ten thirty-two that morning, a phone call came in to the White House.
1: Ari Fleischer.
13: That then went through the situation room, got transferred then the information transferred to the POC, the bunker underneath the White House, where the Vice President, Condi Rice, and other top White House officials were. And then the Vice President called the President on air force one and said to him we just got a phone call saying angel is next now angel is the secret service code word for air force one the fact that someone had the name angel sent shockwaves through the secret service and through colonel tillman colonel mark tillman the air force one pilot how could anybody have the code word for air force one and call the white house and say angel is
15: next at this point, the government has been dispersed to undisclosed locations. And so the president wants to have a meeting with everybody. But I mean, the vice, the vice president's at the POC, Rumsfeld's in, in a secure facility at the Pentagon. Uh, Norm Mineta, the head, the head of the transportation department who, who put all, pulled all the planes out of the sky, he just happens to be, I think, at, at the PIOC. But there are others the CIA director, Secretary of State is in South America, I believe it was Peru. And so The president says, well, you know, um, I'm going to come back to Washington and uh, they say, Mr. President, uh, we recommend that we brief you first. Uh, The nearest facility that can accommodate such a briefing with everybody dispersed to these undisclosed locations is an hour and 15 minutes north of you at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska.
8: As to retribution, lawmakers particularly careful not to make any overt suggestions and lay blame. There are obviously a lot of suspicions that this may be something uh, from uh, Islamic fundamentalists, someone from the Arab world, or the types of terrorists who have uh, tormented the U.S., whether it was in Yemen when the USS Cole was bombed or elsewhere. Uh, But they're also cautious to say it's still very early, and that type of speculation uh, could prove unwarranted, notwithstanding all the signals that they are very suspicious that that's,
15: in fact, where the blame is. May lie. And when we got on the ground at Offutt, Offutt is the headquarters of Strategic Air Command. So the runways were designed to survive a nuclear blast. So they're long. I mean, they're like, you know, 12,000 feet long. They'll be, you know, uh, nearly three miles long. So we land on this long runway, go to the very end of the runway, and there's a little box, a little concrete box there. Like you'd see alongside a major highway, a telephone switching box, it's got a door in it, and that's about all it's got is a door, and then equipment inside, and it's literally about the size of a square of a door plus framing, and that's what this was, and it's literally in the middle of the prairie, the Nebraska prairie, out there at the end of the runway, and we, we go to the door, they open up the door, we walk down several hundred feet down a, uh, down a stairwell, and there is a gigantic Bunker under, underneath the plains of Nebraska, uh, where there's a giant screen showing the, the world. The president then has the briefing. The president
13: simply said, "I'm going back to Washington." The Secret Service would have preferred him to stay overnight in it, but at that point there were no more aircraft in the sky. All the aircraft had landed. There were no worries. We had established combat air patrols over the skies of the United States. Air Force One had a fighter escort, which it never has when it flies domestically. And the president just said, I'm going back. In fact, I remember him saying to Mrs. Bush, uh, he said, all I know is if I'm in the White House and an airplane is heading my way, I hope I read my Bible that day.
5: There is movement from the president of the United States. He apparently has wrapped up a National Security Council meeting that he was conducting via phone at Offutt Air Force Base. There you see Air Force One in the air. He is headed back to the White House.
9: I got a phone call by a firefighter, Richie Obermeyer, which was a neighbor of uh, my brother, Stephen. Frank Siller. And Richie said to me, Frank, you know, Stephen's on a list of missing firefighters. And I said, Rich, I do know that. Uh, We haven't heard from Stephen all day. I keep calling him. uh, And he goes, Frank, you know, it's really bad down here. And I said, yes, I I, I could see that, Rich. Uh, You know, and I got calls from other people saying how bad it was. He goes, no, Frank, you don't understand how bad it is. I said, Rich, I understand. He goes, no, Frank, you don't understand. Nobody's coming home.
16: I have reason to believe that um, a great many firemen and uh, policemen are trapped in that rubble. They arrived at the uh, building to try and uh, help people who uh, were inside, and when the buildings collapsed, it is believed a great number of New York's finest and bravest died
15: at the scene.
14: As the night progressed, it got even worse. Uh, the pain, you know, we, uh, we talked a lot. Me and my sergeant, we kept each other awake. We talked about our families. Um, and he was straight out with me. He said, look, if they don't get to us by the morning, we're going to die from compartment syndrome. He explained that what, what that was to me and, you know, how our buddies' bodies would shut down. So we just kept fighting. We kept fighting. And for many, many hours, it wasn't until eight o'clock that night that I heard in the distance, uh, United States Marine Corps, can anybody hear us? And it was two Marine reservists, uh, David Carnes and Jason Thomas, along with a civilian that literally broke through the lines and went in the epicenter because we were near, uh, the sphere, uh, So we were in between both buildings, both towers that hit us. And these men, you know, put their lives on the line, running through the barricades without permission and they found us. For too too long, the world has just shrugged its shoulders at terrorism. But we now know that none of us as Americans can avoid that terrorism, unless we take strong action against it. And I expressed to the president on behalf of both of us and all of the Senate, that we stand shoulder to shoulder with him in this fight, that no one will try to seek partisan or geographic or any other advantage. We will be united
5: in this fight. What everybody remembers is people, the um, you know, members, bipartisan, coming to the steps of the Capitol.
1: Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram.
5: And singing God Bless America a very organic moving moment and that's something you know that when you look at the video history of that day 100 years from now that's one of the things that people will will notice and remember
15: Two of us are standing in the uh, in the walkway outside the private office, talking about the day's events. When all of a sudden, we look out the window and up, plows a fighter jet and takes up station at the right wing of the uh, of the aircraft, the F sixteen fighter. And you know, we'd seen fighters earlier in the day, but they were always either way above us or way below us, and we could only see when we made a turn. But this guy was right on our wingtip, and so my colleague said to me. Uh, get your camera, get your camera, take a picture, take a picture, because I'd had a little electronic camera that I was taking photographs with. So I went into the office where my briefcase was, president's office, and there was one, there was an F-16 on our right wing tip as well. And so I went back out in the hallway and we were sort of talking about this sort of excitedly when all of a sudden it woke, both of us woke up to the fact that this was not a ceremonial escort. We'd crossed into what's called the National Capital Airspace and this, these two aircraft were the last line of defense. Their, their job was, if anything came up off the ground or came through the air towards Air Force One, their job was to put their craft between that threat and Air Force One. I spent the day
3: essentially just walking around New York City, just taking it all in. Steve Ducey, And it was eerily quiet in New York. Usually there's, you know, so many car horns honking and people yelling, Hey, get out of my way. Not a sound. It was surreal. It's like we're in the biggest city in America and it sounds like downtown Abilene, Kansas, where I'm from there. There's no traffic. You don't hear anything except an occasional bird in a tree. And that was it.
15: Now Marine Wood, uh, it's, you know, it's a great way to commute to the airport. I recommend it. Uh, Over my shoulder, the window that's over my shoulder, the Pentagon comes into view and it's still, the smoke is still pouring down the Pentagon, moving from west to east. And we go through the plume and the president breaks the silence by saying, take a look, you're looking at the face of war in the 21st century.
4: I remember wondering what was going to come next. And I don't think, frankly, that many people in this country, um, if you told them on that evening, that there would be no further attack on this scale would have been prepared to believe that. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen the next day. We didn't know any of it. For much of that day, we didn't know where the president was. Um, you know, it was there was no day I've ever experienced quite
5: like it. The thing I will always remember later that night when I came home later that night was the smell, the smell at of the Pentagon that was a distinct smell that i've never smelled before of jet fuel or you know chemicals and construction it was just extraordinary what i smelled at the time and it's something you know they always talk about your olfactory nerves are the most sensitive you remember um, you know the smell of your grandmother's sugar cookies or the, the the perfume your date wore at the prom or something and for me it's that kind of smell and it takes me back to 9 11.
14: Uh, scott strauss patty mcgee and a civilian Who was a former EMT, Chuck Sharika, jumped into this very, very dangerous hole and began my rescue. Uh, It took three hours for my rescue. Uh, They were ordered many, many times to leave us because it was an encroaching fire. But these men said, no, they died with us. There was a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Uh, They finally got me out after three hours. Uh, About 11 o'clock that night, I came up and I remember looking up and asking, where's everything? Because I could see the sky, but I couldn't see the buildings. And a firefighter said, it's all gone, kid. And I remember that's the first time I cried that night because I didn't cry when, the, when I was injured. I didn't cry when the guys died. I didn't cry through all the pain and suffering. But I cried when I saw the buildings were gone because I knew we we had failed. We, we didn't get everybody home. That was tough. Uh, they they sent me down the line of, of many, many people, put me on an ambulance, took me to Bellevue Hospital. And the second time I cried was when I got to Bellevue Hospital because... You know, it's about 11.30 at night at this point. Uh, They get me off the ambulance and I'm expecting this to be in a long line of injured people. And uh, the doctors and nurses were just standing around and I said, where is everybody? And they're like, you're it. Good evening.
12: Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes, or in their offices. Secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat, but they have failed. Our country is strong.
8: You certainly didn't have the sense that the Al Qaeda attack was over. Chris Wallace. I think everybody was waiting for the next wave of the attack, but here was our our leader uh, reaching out to the American public and saying, We're going to bring the people who did this to America to justice. And that gave a certain sense of comfort, not that the the war was over, but at least that we were now going to begin waging our war.
12: I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. I appreciate so very much the members of Congress who have joined me in strongly condemning these attacks. And on behalf of the American people, I thank the many world leaders who have called to offer their condolences and assistance. America and our friends and allies join with all those who want peace and security in the world. And we stand together to win the war against terrorism. Tonight, I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. America has stood down en- enemies before, and we will do so this time. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Thank you. Good night,
1: and God bless America. Next time on Fox News Rewind 9-11. We have
8: in a sense, the the luxury, the breathing stays, to mourn. We ask Almighty
12: God to watch over our nation and grant us patience and resolve in all that is to come.
14: I said, you okay, Mr. President? He said, yeah. I start to get
2: down. He said, where are you going? I said, I was told to get down. He said, no, no, you stay right here.
14: I can hear you!
2: We missed significant
13: opportunity
10: by not passing the information about the hijackers those entrusted with protecting you failed you and i failed you the taliban regime is coming
12: to an end